Warning. This series has depictions of gendered violence and some coarse language. Please use your discretion when listening. This podcast is for educational purposes only and does not replace medical advice. One of the participants we worked with said it was the most profound piece of growth for her to realize that perhaps all the issues she'd been struggling with since these incidents were the result of a brain injury, not the result of her not being good enough or smart enough Mm -hmm. or capable or worthy. So when you you think about how many women, uh, again, experience this type of violence, and you look at the numbers of women who are then later murdered by an intimate partner, there is significant evidence to show that strangulation is a factor, that if we identified it sooner and provided support sooner, it's a way to possibly reduce the, number one, the harm, and number two, possible lethality amongst women. point in which doctors, you know, oh, she was wonky before she got hit or she's just very mm. emotional, you know. And and I think that's it's a, a the sad thing is where women's pain is usually thought of as psychological and you have to prove it's not. So some women have then seen my work and contacted me saying, oh my gosh, you know, I just, you know, I read your paper or I saw like something a write-up or whatever it might have been and now it makes sense why I'm having all these troubles years later. I almost hand out a trigger warning anytime I go and do a talk anywhere. I can guarantee that in a room full of 25 or 30 people I'm gonna trigger somebody either on a on an intimate partner violence um, front or, or a traumatic brain injury front or both. Episode 6, Light Bulb. I had a light bulb moment during my research for this season. I wanted to cover chronic traumatic encephalopathy and buried deep in Google was a website dedicated to female concussions. The light bulb turned on. I now know that in North America there are only a handful of researchers working in the intersection of traumatic brain injury and intimate partner violence and I mean a handful. They are few but they are mighty. They were diligently focusing elsewhere when their light bulbs turned on. I'm Laura, and this is I Love You. For us, was around the time of our, actually of our strangulation research. I had gone. Um, I'd been invited by Wilfrid Laurier University to speak on the, the research that we were doing, and a member of the audience, whose name is Helena Hag, Lynn Hag. Um, Lynn had come up to me at the end of of my speaking to say, oh, this is really interesting. I'm doing my research on a traumatic brain injury, and I'd like to see if there's sort of any fit between the work that you folks are doing and the work I'm doing. I said, absolutely fine. I think you should come to Toronto and we'll have some tea. And um, very civilized. Mecca. Indeed, indeed. Yes. And Lynn, Lynn did, and she is. I call her my one of my girl crushes because since then, this is like in in two thousand and fifteen. Um, since then, we become best 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 of friends. 
once the light bulb, as you termed it, has gone off, then everything falls into place. And you, you, you're constantly having these aha moments. And this is part of the reason why the work that we're doing with, you know, Lynn and Angela Colantoni, and I'll talk about her later on as well, is so, it's so critical to raise awareness so that frontline workers can make the connection and understand the women that are presented in front of them better. The light bulb moment for me really came when when I was doing that reading for a colleague and and it really wasn't something that I was focused on. I was just helping her out with a favor and and because I crossed the boundary between traumatic brain injury research and social work practice um, and have done so for a number of years now, I, I just had specialized knowledge and understanding of both of those spheres and was able to put that together and say, Wow, this is something that we really need to look at, and and this is a this has the the potential to be a significant problem in people's lives, and and how can we do something about that? Um, no, it was, it was automatically. I mean, I think our, the first website that I put up in 2012 had that component to it. Um, the tagline for pink concussions has always been sports, domestic violence, military service. Mm-hmm. Like there was never a point that it wasn't included. Um, it just, you know, seemed to me an area that was just as important as sports concussion, probably more numbers, you know, by an increment of 10 to 20 than the sports concussions. And nobody was connecting the dots. So um, I also had seen a number of um, sports CEOs um, when they came back from a conference on um, childhood um, predators and sexual um, abusers, and the reason you know it was there, they went a bunch of these top people went to this conference where they were exposed to, you know, the need for reporting and and childhood predators, and and they were it was two days, and they were really taken back. Like I just sat in the we were at another conference and I sat in the bar talking to them and they were, it was a lot, like it pretty much overwhelmed them. And I took from it that they probably would not go back to another one. They would send somebody else. I'm Karen Mason. I am the co-founder of the SOAR project, supporting survivors of abuse and brain injury through research. And I'm the former executive director of Kelowna Women's Shelter. And I'm Paul Van Donkeler. I'm a professor in the School of Health and Exercise Sciences at UBC's Okanagan campus. And I'm the principal investigator on the SOAR project and the co-founder along with Karen. Paul and Karen have a very unique story, one I'm guessing is pretty rare. They met not with science on their minds, but with hope for love. We're so accustomed to it now that it becomes, I think, a bit normal. But when we think back to how we met and what's happened since, it's pretty nuts. We were both in our middle years and single, and we met on an online dating site and connected pretty quickly and started dating and fell in love. And a few months later, I saw an article about the connection between intimate partner violence and traumatic brain injury. And given I was operating a shelter for women and kids fleeing intimate partner violence, and Paul was and is a concussion researcher who at the time was focusing on sports concussion, it was a a huge light bulb moment for me. And I immediately forwarded this article to him and said, 
why are we focusing so much on athletes? We need to focus on women. And what was Paul's reaction? Paul? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> I, my, my main reaction was to uh, be curious and uh, start to look, uh, you know, as a, any good academic would in the scientific literature. And uh, so I did a, a bibliographic search of all the great research that I expected to find on the intersection between intimate partner violence and traumatic brain injury. And uh, the search took about five minutes because there had been a grand total, I think at that point of two articles published on the topic, specifically looking at traumatic brain injury in this population. And so um, it was really clear that there uh, there was, wasn't very much evidence um, right now, but it was, I think, also equally clear that uh, it was completely understudied because um, in hindsight, I think a lot of the challenges that uh, women who've experienced intimate partner violence face is likely due to uh, a, an experience of traumatic brain injury or, or repetitive experiences of traumatic brain injury at the same time. So in five minutes and an empty literature search later, they knew they had to start from the ground up. So where do you start to understand this complex issue? You know, initially when we started, our focus was we need to figure out the incidence and effects of brain injury on survivors of intimate partner violence. We need to train frontline workers in women's shelters how to recognize signs and symptoms and how to help. And then we need to find ways to give women who've experienced this some support. But the more we've been on the second phase of the project, the educate phase, the more we've realized that we need to educate a huge range of professionals, not only about brain injury, but about intimate partner violence and the nuance and complexities of this issue, because many of the professionals who are offering healthcare aren't doing it through the intimate partner violence trauma-informed lens. So they're not necessarily even thinking about brain injury as a possibility when they see someone in the ER or in a doctor's office necessarily. But also you've got the issue where a woman might not even disclose that that's how the injury occurred. Yeah. Or she may be presenting with symptoms that they confuse for something else. So one of the women who we have worked with, now her experience is about 15 years old now, but she talks about how she went to the ER and her head was split open and she was bleeding and she was a mess and they treated her like she was drunk. They asked her if she'd been using, they didn't listen to what she had to say. She was incredibly confused because of the head injury and the trauma she'd just undergone. But there was not that trauma-informed lens through which the practice occurred and she didn't get the support she needed. So how do, you know, you both have this light bulb moment, you both converge on this, you figure out there's not a lot of research. How do you figure what aspect of the research to focus on? Well, for me, given that I was executive director of a women's shelter and dealing with staff who were dealing with challenging clients who'd been in trauma every day, it really was this aha moment of, wait a second, maybe some of the women who we find the most challenging in that shelter context in terms of accomplishing goals, meeting criteria required in a communal living situation, maybe those women are the ones who need us most and are the most challenging because they have a brain injury. But the concept of brain injury as being a factor and that being a lens through which we practiced had never even been discussed. So for me, it was immediately clear that in order to better support women and get them better outcomes, we needed to also better support the workers who were there to support them with education. But we couldn't do any education or support 
women survivors until we came up with what the actual incidence rates were. Karen has shared some of these numbers in episode five, and she sheds light on a few more statistics for us. And statistically speaking, one in three of us will experience violence at the hands of a partner in our lifetime. And we know that that number is in fact low because that one in three number comes from reported incidents. And there's still shame and stigma that are barring people from reporting. And we see that many of those women, as many as 92%, may be experiencing head injury. How could anyone truly step up and say, this is not a worthy group to be studying, as opposed to these smaller subsets? To me, that's ridiculous. And we absolutely need to be looking at this as the biggest group to study. Head, Head injury really is often spoken of as an invisible injury. And as Paul mentioned, Intimate partner violence, for the most part, happens behind closed doors. It's not something that people tend to witness. And the notion that something that has become a woman's normal could be causing her long-term health issues is probably not something she's even considered, let alone the fact that she probably hasn't even come to a place of admitting she's in an abusive situation, nor to talk to family or friends about it because of that stigma and shame that are still so associated with intimate partner violence. Shame and stigma, lack of reporting, all played into phase one of the SOAR project. Yeah, so we're the the phase one, the explore phase, where we're basically looking at characterizing um, IPV-related TBI. That is ongoing. Uh, You know, the first sets of studies, uh, we just had one paper published last fall, and we have another few um, in the pipeline that are about to go out. Uh, And... You know, the, we're doing we're doing the blood draws, so we're um, you know that'll take longer to get all that analysis uh, done, um, and we have plans to kind of expand some of those lab-based assessments to look at uh, you know potentially using brain imaging to look at aspects of uh, uh, potential uh, neurodegenerative processes and, and longer-term potential longer-term effects of the experience, uh, and then absolutely as part of the project we're. Uh, um, also focusing on getting that evidence, getting that knowledge into the hands of uh, people who can use it in the education uh, aspect of what we're doing. Kelowna Women's Shelter does recruitment as part of the intake process for new clients and asks them if they want to be involved in a study that's looking at brain function and survivors of intimate partner violence. If people are interested, they get connected with the research coordinator who works part-time for the university and part-time for Kelowna Women's Shelter as a counselor, and then she will connect with them and do the informed consent process and then start them in the process of being involved in the research. It's been a really fantastic and successful way to do recruitment and this research because she knows the women, she knows the structure of how things work at the shelter, and she's able to advocate and work with them through the process. We are also working with a few other local support agencies in the community who also are involved in the project. So they will also do intakes and recommend people through to our research coordinator. But the main body of participants have come through Kelowna Women's Shelter. So of course, when you are on the ground level of this kind of research, you are bound to come across really surprising findings. Paul and Karen are candid about what shocked them when the data started to speak. Two key things that that really surprised me There was this concern in the beginning that it might be difficult to get women to participate in this research Mm -hmm. because they were going to give a substantial uh, number of hours of their time. They were going to share traumatic personal stories and undertake some interesting scientific 
experiments to an extent, um, and yet they weren't going to get any direct benefit from it. The benefit we get from this research will serve women down the line, but won't necessarily immediately serve women who participate in the research today. So we weren't sure what the interest and participation levels would be. Yet we found so many of our participants have felt incredibly empowered and almost vindicated to put a label on this, to understand that the issues and challenges that have plagued them since they experienced their relationship are not their fault, that they are related to something this abusive partner did to them. And to be able to put a label on that and to say there might be something they could do to fix it seems to have been an incredibly empowering experience. And that's been really gratifying for us moving through this process. I think the uh, the uh, repetitive kind of chronic nature of the experiences is kind of shocking, um, and uh, also the because I've done you know 20 years of research on sports concussion, we have a lot of data in the lab about the response of young athletes to um, an acute um, injury. And so we've been able to do quite a few comparisons, direct comparisons on some of the same measures. And so uh, one of the ones that really stood out is just the severity of the symptoms that the person is experiencing when they are you know, showing up in the lab to be tested. And so you know, when we look at um, uh, young athletes who've got an acute concussion, uh, they you know, have an increase in the, in the severity of their symptoms within a few days of the injury that then um, dissipate over the following week or a couple of weeks. Um, and when we compared kind of the magnitude of those symptom severities to what we saw in our survivors of intimate partner violence, we actually found a greater symptom severity in the intimate partner violence survivors uh, than what we saw in the young athletes. And the kind of shocking thing was that we were looking at the survivors of IPV, uh, an average of about a year after their most recent episode, mm. whereas in the young athletes, we were looking within two or three days after their, their injury. So clearly, the symptoms are chronic. The chronic nature of the symptoms, perhaps due to the differences in female brain anatomy, are slender axons, no doubt the compound injuries, and possibly the ongoing psychological trauma she has endured. Add on top of that, the lack of immediate attention and her chronic experience of the symptoms makes way more sense. The, the other piece that's been interesting for us, and you, you do have it in one of the questions and we haven't spoken about it, mm -hmm. is, you know, a, a question we still are struggling with and that we'll be actually hopefully adding to the scope of our research in the next couple of years is examining the ethics of screening women for traumatic brain injury and intimate partner violence when it comes to how it might be potentially used to their detriment in things like custody proceedings for children or access to children or their abuser using it to suggest that they're not capable in a number of ways. That's really been an interesting dilemma that everyone who's doing this work has, has a variety of opinions on and we really hope to get some clarity on that as we move forward. I think the answer is educating the legal system, the justice system, those who work in child protection to understand that a brain injury does not make someone unfit. It mm -hmm. does make them someone who needs some extra supports and help in order to be their best self and to keep their family together. But that's been an issue that we didn't think about at the very beginnings of this project. 
We dive into the ethics of the research in our next episode, The Scales of Justice. This is an area our next researcher has at the forefront of her mind. So my name is uh, Helena Hogg, but I use Lynn. So um, it shows up as Helena Lynn Hogg. I am a registered social worker. So I hold an MSW, a Master's of Social Work, and I'm currently working on my doctoral degree at Wilfrid Laurier University in the Faculty of Social Work. I focus on uh, looking at people who have a traumatic brain injury, usually as a result of um, violence or assault. And at the moment, I'm looking specifically at women who are involved in uh, intimate partner violence within their relationships. Having an inkling of understanding about the experience of being in a relationship that is that that is violent, and and being able to think about well, how hard was it for me to survive and thrive and build a life again after my injury, and I didn't have somebody throwing a punch at me every every couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. What would that mean? in that context. And as soon as, as soon as I sat down and thought about that at all, I just said, okay, well, that's what I need to do. I, I need to go and I need to go and deal with the fact that we haven't talked about it. And I need to do some research and get some information out there and see what I can do to make some changes on the front line. And, you know, 30 years from now, when I've done that, then maybe, maybe I'll move on. <laughs> but there's so much work to be done now. And what's amazing is that we're seeing that happen. Within, oh. within months of the toolkit being released um, on a broad scale, we have now been, I, I do public, uh, public talks all the time. I'm doing professional education talks. So um, talking to frontline workers across the country, um, getting them up to speed, getting them, getting them the basic education. You, you know, it doesn't take a lot to be able to understand what what's happening in front of them and how to change their their services in order to accommodate. So we're seeing a lot more requests for that happening. We've got uh, police services within Ontario who are asking us to come and talk to them about how they can change the way in which they engage in their jobs. We've got policy changes happening within the IPV sector. They're looking at new and exciting, as far as I'm concerned, exciting ways to change how they do intake procedures. Um, Police services are looking at um, making sure that that women have access to medical uh, services before interviewing. So as Mm -hmm. to make sure that they're they're aware of a concussion injury, if if it's playing into things, that kind of thing. So I think it's really, I'm really excited to know that the work that we're doing is hitting the ground that fast and is is being is being taken up and and is being useful. Out of the acquired brain injury research lab at the University of Toronto in Ontario, Canada was born the ABI toolkit, available on abitoolkit.ca. There are links in the show notes. Principal investigator Dr. Angela Colantonio, Lynn Hogg, and numerous other research partners had a goal to have one location for information for survivors, family, and frontline workers. It is an educational wonder, and its aim is to allow women to gain a greater understanding of their injuries and to access what resources are available. It also educates frontline workers with a trauma-informed lens. If 
Anywhere there is a place to go, it is here. We had a great team. Um, you know, I, I, I'm very, very proud of that piece of work. Yeah. And I think mostly because I know that it will, I built something that will outlive me in that sense. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter whether I keep doing this work or not, that toolkit will exist and will continue to help people. And for me, that's really satisfying. But I was just the lead on the project. Um, you know, it was a big team and um, we had a lot of help from really key, uh, really key people in terms of uh, survivors. Certainly we, you know, we didn't do a lot without talking to them, um, talking to the front line and to program managers, finding out what did they want to know? What did they need to know? And what format was useful to them? There's no sense building something that is, that, that puts you off instead of invites you in. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that was a key piece of it. Um, and then hiring a, a design team that, that really understood what we were trying to do and that was able to help us look at layering the information in such a way that people can, they can have easy access, you know, if they need to, or they can, you know, they can get a lot of, a lot of information with a deep dive. It just depends on what, what your needs are and how much time you have. One thing I want to tell you that I'm not sure comes across in this episode or in this season is that all these researchers know each other really well. In fact, some are really close friends. The admiration, respect, and complete support of one another is unlike anything I've experienced in the research and science world, but its infrastructure is really small. Um, but it's also lonely because you don't know, you don't know, you know, other people have got lots of people to rely on in terms of of knowledge and sharing and expertise and and that just isn't the case here. Join us in episode 7 and meet with Lady Justice. To a police officer, she can appear drunk and combative. To a family court judge, she's disorganized and unfit. In criminal court, her trauma goes unrecognized as she sits near the man who tried to take her life. I'm Laura, and this is I Love You. Like I had one friend of mine whose lawyer literally said to her, it would be easier if he'd hit you, if you had bruises or something. Because if you don't, yeah. then it makes it very difficult for family court. The risk comes in two ways. One, through the judicial system and um, equally uneducated uh, front lines in the, in the judicial system, not recognizing that traumatic brain injury does not in and of itself mean that a woman can't parent. Help us spread awareness by rating, reviewing, and subscribing to I Love You Today on Apple Podcasts. Your reviews raise our ranking and let others find this education. I'm Laura, and this is I Love You. You said you